This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, I'm joined by sustainability strategist, media expert, and Bard MBA alum, Amy Kalafa. And we're speaking with photographer and environmental artist, Anne de Carbuccia. Anne is the founder of the Time Shrine Foundation, which raises awareness on human-caused threats to the planet through the use of photography, film, and art installations. Her permanent exhibit, One Planet, One Future, is on display at the West Beth Art Center in New York's West Village. Well, and welcome to the podcast. I should say uh, bienvenue and bonjourno because I understand that you are a very international person um, living in Milan and New York now and you're French and American nationality. So uh, welcome and bonjour. Um, let's begin Grazie, with... Amy. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> um, let's begin with your art itself. Uh, you're a photographer and an environmental artist. And you have a series of artwork that you call Time Shrines, and you've even created a foundation around this work. So you create installations from elements found in landscapes. Some of the shrines even have live animals in them. And for listeners to the podcast who haven't yet seen your photos, I I wanted to describe my first impression. Um, When I looked at your photos, my eye was first drawn to, to the backdrops of these images, which are, which are these incredibly expansive and, and beautiful landscapes. And then um, my eye was drawn to the shrines that you place in the foreground, and, and they're made of things like skulls and bones and hourglasses and prayer flags and stones and other organic materials. And, and some of the elements are really tiny, and I found it challenging to focus on both the vastness of the background um, and also on the minutia of the foreground. And so your work really makes me think of what we sometimes call land artists, like Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty in the Great Salt Lake in Utah or Andy Farnsworthy's nature pieces. But these kinds of masculine creations are all about improving and ordering or magnifying nature, like in the case of James Terrell. Um, and your time shrines struck me as really the opposite. You make this tiny footprint without disturbing nature. And yet these delicate pieces bring our attention to nature and to the landscape and demand that we examine it closely. So my first question to you, Anne, is like, what is your motivation for making this type of art? Well, thank you. This is a beautiful description and I'm very touched by it. Um, you know, basically the project of the time shrines and uh, the whole concept of One Planet, One Future is uh, about raising awareness about our current issues. Um, certainly in my own way, I'm channeling my own anxieties for the future. Uh, uh, and, and, and there is also the aspect of me being a mother and, and, and therefore uh, my worries for the next generation and, and how the planet is going to evolve. So. I am addressing the main issues um, that we'll have to face, whether it's uh, water, uh, some erosion to drought, to refugees and war, but I'm also uh, speaking of the sixth extinction uh, with endangered species. And of course, trash is a very big subject. So um, there is a documentative aspect to my work and uh, 
and I do portray it through these incredible landscapes because I actually go to these locations and uh, with my backpack and uh, a very, very small crew. And, uh, and I show you these places and the way they really are and the beauty of our planet or the beauty of these animals or the horror of trash and, um, you know, beautiful sanctuaries. Uh, in the same time, uh, from in my generation, we need the time shrine in front of all that beauty. We need the installation, the, the, the installation that I compose out of organic elements that I find on location, but as well with the vanity, which is the representation of the unique soul, but which is, which is not a symbol of death. It's a symbol of uh, choice. It's here to remind us that uh, we all are mortal and that we have a choice in life between a beautiful and productive life and a superficial and vain life. It's a very ancient symbol used by artists since the night of time, and I certainly haven't invented it, but um, I've kind of reappropriated that concept that has been a little bit lost with the use of skulls uh, lately in, in contemporary art. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a very important theme right now. Um, and then the hourglass, which of course is uh, our most ancient way of measuring time. I also use tribal uh, artifacts, if there are tribes uh, or local communities that are there, it's a way of honoring them. Very often I collaborate with them and they collaborate to my installation. Um, but these are ephemeral. As you said, they are uh, momentary installations. Uh, they are a mark, a human mark in that moment, but they are, they are basically made to remind the viewer, to remind the collector or the people looking at the art that we have a time issue right now. We have, uh, we need to really think as individuals of what we want for the next world coming away. Because we are in a transitional moment, or at least that's how I feel as an artist. Um, there are a lot of changes taking place. Uh, I'm documenting what we have, what we're about to lose, and sometimes what we've already lost. And all that needs to be addressed. And um, as individuals, we do have a choice about what we want next, and that's basically what I'm addressing. So you're, you're taking on pretty much all, all of the problems of the world in your work. It's, it's, it really is just, um, you know, a vast subject matter. And as a documentarian, and you described how, you know, we all have choices that we can make in our behavior, how do you make the choices on, on which subject to focus on uh, you know you can only pick one project at a time how, how do you how do you look at all the immense problems that we have in the world and then say okay I'm going to focus on this I'm, I'm you know and, and and where you go and and how you choose to present the the issues in that place how, how does how, how do you make those decisions I think it's a mix of both do they find me or do I find them um, I started in a, in, a, in a very kind of organic way, and uh, sometimes I would go to places and I would actually uh, discover other issues that I had not expected there, and that then, therefore needed more uh, for me to address more than, uh, than, than the ones that I had was meant to go for. Um, so there's that aspect, and also the more people would uh, know about my work and the more I would meet people, and the more sometimes they would tell me, well, Come, you know, I'll, I'll show you my country. I'll show you something really important that I think that you should do. And so it's collaboration. And uh, it's a lot of collaboration, a lot of people who, who, who guide me, uh, protectors. I've met protectors from all over the planet. Um, it's friendships. It's, uh, it's people who see things the same way. I, I go to very remote places that are very difficult. 
Um, so without uh, local help, it would be almost impossible to go to or certainly to work with. Um, I work with scientists. I work with uh, species survival centers around the planet who are desperate for uh, content for, for people to give a voice to um, the animals that they care for. Um, I'm also addressing, I have chosen certain places because growing, with the project growing, for example, with trash, what happened is that I, I did not address trash at the beginning of my project. And it's because I started encountering more and more trash in the most remote locations on the planet that I suddenly realized how important it was to address it and speak of it and denounce it. Um, because a lot of people don't realize how bad the situation is out there and that, you know, plastic has arrived to the most remote islands on the planet, places where humans don't even live. And so, for example, that's why I chose to go to uh, and, and, and speak of trash um, in symbolic places such as Mount Everest, and I documented trash on Mount Everest, or in one of the lowest parts of the planet, which is the Maldives, uh, which everybody considers as, you know, one of those this um, dream holiday and uh, where trash has arrived as well. Um, so it's a mix of, of a little bit of everything. I just got back from the Amazon, the Peruvian Amazon. I went to document the primary forest, or rather what's left of the primary forest there. Um, and again, it was, it was thanks to collaborations with the rangers, the local rangers there, that I was able to do that because that was an extremely difficult trip. It would have been impossible. Um, if it wasn't for that one specific ranger who took me to the primary forest, a place where uh, foreigners had never been, and certainly not women. And so, you know, it, it really is about um, uh, helping, everybody helping me on the project and, and contributing to it in a way. And, and really, the, the images speak to the remoteness of these places. And I think I read that you've been to, uh, how many different trips have you gone on and different places have you gone on to, to um to do the time shrines? Uh, I, I don't remember exactly, but I've been to most continents. I haven't done Australia yet, and uh, I have over I've I have over 150 images, um, wow. you know, done on I don't know. I would, I would say I'm not really good in math. I'm an artist, but I would say probably uh, at least wow. <laughs> at least 40 <laughs> or 50 trips. So uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 been uh, you know documenting our, our era and our planet is uh, yeah. It's, it's still a big planet, and so yeah. Yeah, I think it could keep you working for many years to come. Um, but that's incredible. Yeah, that many trips and 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 that kind of uh, an expansive work. Um, we can, you know, we can certainly describe your work as a social enterprise, um, it, which kind of brings up the question of like, how do you and how do you survive and thrive? You know, how do you reach your audience? You're supporting all these different causes and a lot of different, um, if I understand right, organizations through your foundation. How do you support yourself and, and how do you reach the, the people that you're trying to reach to, um, you know, to, to create the change that you're looking for? Well, as an artist with a message, it was very important for me to give you examples. And that's why um, we founded, I founded this uh, public foundation at 501 and um, the art is for sale, it's fine art photography. Um, so it has a certain price, and it's uh, and it's pure fine art photography. So this is all about the art first, and those go for sale, and the integrity of the sales goes direct that goes directly to the foundation. Um, so you know, I'm a foundation with a product, and uh, that permits uh, us to finance both our educational projects. We have two uh, um, we have two exhibitions, permanent exhibitions, one in New York City and one in Milano in Europe. 
um, where a lot of schools, we have a school project there where a lot of students can come and universities come and experience the art and hear more about the message. And, um, and of course, we, most of our exhibitions always are in collaboration with institutions, um, from museums to, uh, to art foundations to biennials or triennials, and, uh, and, and that is in collaboration, the condition being that the exhibitions be free. Um, so that sometimes we contribute with as well with the, with the foundation. Um, so, you know, I, I used to work as an artist. I, I used to do a lot of video art, and that, had, that was a really great um, way to make money and, uh, and was quite successful. Um, today I'm in a position where I, I, don't, I can do this uh, completely for free. Um, I also have a great husband who supports the project a lot. And, um, and so, so obviously, you know, I'm an artist who can afford to, to work for free and do this project for free. But I think it's also very important that, uh, as an example of, 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 you know, because I'm addressing also, I'm obviously addressing the cycle of life a lot in my work, but I'm also uh, denouncing and addressing mass consumerism and how we are consuming the planet today. And so, of course, that is part of the message. There's a lot of video in your work as well. Now, do you have a, a video um, videographer who travels with you, or do you do the video taping yourself? How 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 does how does your process work? Because you've got layers. You've got the photography. You've got the videography. You've got the actual time shrines, and then you have these landscapes. Can you tell us a little bit about your working process and and what that looks like? Sure. So. At the beginning, I didn't even think about filming. And what happened is when I came back from Antarctica and I created all these beautiful kind of surreal installations because Antarctica is another world, outworldly in so many ways, um, people started doubting my work. They, they actually started thinking, well, this is all Photoshop and this can't be true. And she didn't actually, you know, jump on an iceberg and and create an installation. And that's when I realized that I need to film. Um, and obviously I work alone. I was, you know, I work alone. I mean, I, I was obviously with a, a group of other artists. And uh, in this case, in this particular case of Antarctica, that I, I work alone. I, I usually only bring with me either um, a Sherpa if I'm in the Himalaya or uh, a translator if I'm in, uh, in Laos or a friend that's linked to, to that one country. So. I don't work with a crew. And um, when I realized that people were starting to doubt my work, I, that's when I decided to start filming. And at the beginning, and most of the film that you will see online, um, if you go and check it out on the website, most of it was um, actually filmed by non-professionals. Um, whether it was, you know, again, my son's writer, my friend, my daughter, my Sherpa, everybody <laughs> was pretty hands-on and would start filming. Um, and that's how we were able to do the film, which was quite incredible because it was not distant to become a film. Um, and so now we have this 10-minute film that we're doing. And since then, I have evolved, and um, I am trying to bring perhaps one uh, one-person crew uh, to film and photograph because content has become so important and the project has grown so much that it's it's, it's important that I, I because I'm planning on doing more films. Um, that I don't have to always worry about who's filming and if they you know where to press the button and, and all that kind of stuff. So I've, I've evolved a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. So, in, for example, in the Amazon, when I came back from, um, I had one person crew and his assistant, and we were able to film and photograph and also um, interview and, and, and have sound and everything. So, so that's the maximum of, of my crew size. Um, because what I do is so intimate and so personal. And, uh, 
again, these are places that are really hard to get to, um, not made for everybody. So I usually will work with somebody locally who's used to the environment and uh, the difficulties of the place. Um, and then again, with animals, uh, it's, you know, this is very particular to work with animals. It's like working with young children and, and trust is fundamental. And so you cannot have a big crew, uh, noisy crew working uh, along with you. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's very intimate work. It, it, it feels very intimate, and, and that's what made me curious about how you were able to just obtain the video, and, and so fascinating that people um, didn't, didn't really believe that it was real, and that you needed to document the process just to validate it. I, I was very curious about the animals because some of the photographs and then some of the videos you, you have I don't know, there were iguanas uh, crawling through skulls and elephants um, playing in the background. You have a bear cub. Um, there's even shots of you playing with leopards. How, how, where do these animals come from, and how is it that you have this rapport with them that you're able to bring them into your artwork? Well, um, I work with some wild animals. So the elephants that you're mentioning are uh, completely wild African elephants, and that was a very extraordinary shoot because I was uh, allowed, I was collaborating with a big life foundation. I was allowed to work very closely. We knew they were going to come to that one location because that's a water hole where um, all the great uh, elf, male elephants come and drink. Um, I was not allowed to have anybody else on the ground except for myself for, because, you know, for security reasons. Um, and uh, that was an incredible experience. And, Again, perhaps I am a patient kind of silent and, and certainly in awe, so uh, they must have felt that. But in general, I work um, with species survival centers. Uh, the biggest problem we have today with endangered species is that most of them are interbred in nature. And so that is already in a way the end of a species. So there's um, some very visionary humans that have started um, already over 20 years ago that have started um, species survival centers for all sorts of uh, races. And what they're trying to do is create clean-blooded mind animals that will be able to then be released in nature one day when we'll, again, be um, ready for them. And those centers uh, are not zoos. Um, these are animals that are wild and that live in very big sanctuaries and parks. But they have the advantage of being used to human presence and smell. And that's the most of the animals. I work with, like my tiger or my snow leopard. Um, these are not, these are wild animals, but they will not change their behavior uh, because of my presence. And uh, very often what happens is that I connect to their keeper because all these animals have keepers um, that will feed them and care for them. And um, it, the bond between the animal and the keeper is fundamental to my work because what I try and do is connect the animals through the keepers. So it's happened to me to refuse to work with an animal um, because I felt that the animal didn't have a positive rapport with his keeper. And then I knew that, therefore, it was, you know, it would not work out as well. Um, so that's my method. And uh, it, it, until now, it's worked quite well. And, and the animals have all collaborated in extraordinary ways and uh, have been meaning to get, to get to create these incredible images. Yeah, the images are incredible, and clearly you you have a sensitivity and a and a rapport with them um, that's that's kind of uncanny. Uh, I I do want to digress just a little bit about um, you know if you could give us 
a, an overview of your background. You you do have this international perspective. Um, how has that influenced your your vision and um, and your ability to see the world in a way that probably most of us don't get to? Well, I think that the most important part of the my project and what certainly I'm trying to convey more and more is that we're all, it's all connected and we're all connected. And that may sound a little holistic uh, to some people, but it's fundamental uh, going forward um, and for the survival of our species. Um, everywhere I go, I see similarities uh, between one issue and the other. And um, the other thing that I've really realized is, is that if I'm going to Siberia and forests are burning, and I need uh, forest protectors, um, they directly have a link to, uh, to the survival of the ocean, um, because those forests that are burning will have consequences on, the, on you know, what's going on with the ocean. And it could be that those forest keepers have never seen an ocean, but they are linked to it in, in a way. And, and I think that that's very important, the consequences of our actions, our daily gestures, can really affect something or somebody or, or an animal at the other side of the planet. And um, I think that that's what's a little bit missing sometimes in the wide overview of our planet is that our individuality and our cultures should all be respected. Uh, uh, that's very important, but it's also that we all need to be in this together and we all need to realize the ripples and the consequences of our actions going forward. I think that's fundamental. And perhaps the fact of me being a little bit international and traveling around the world and creating those connections um, is it has been helpful in my vision. Yeah, I think it I think it shows through. Um so Anne, what's what's next? What's what is your next piece? Where are you going next? I'm going to West Papua, um, which is uh, in Indonesia, these islands of uh, New Guinea. And um, I'm going to be working a lot with oceans now. And I have a big show opening in Naples this summer, and it will be very much linked to um, the ocean subject. And West Papua is going to be, I, I don't know, it's, it's supposed to be a paradise and uh, extremely beautiful. They say that the coral reefs there are still very pristine. I don't know what I will find. It, it, it's always a surprise. Uh, I'm planning on working with the reefs. Um, but who knows what else will come across once I get there. It's, it's always a, you need to be very adaptable in uh, this line of work. In, in the video that I saw, you talk about your kids and, and you wonder what types of shrines they will make in the future. You speculate that they'll only have garbage to work with. Now, this podcast goes out to an audience of, of mission-driven business people who really are all working to make a difference. What, what is your hope or advice for our listeners? That trash is an opportunity. I mean, the reduce, reuse, recycle. The reduce, reuse, recycle uh, motto is, is, is fundamental and that uh, we need to look at trash and, and all its consequences as an economical opportunity. I mean, in a, in a way, uh, this is also a very exciting time because it is a transitional moment where we are going to need to make decisions but also because there are so many opportunities and so much novelty and so many different ways uh, of looking at uh, what the next world could be uh, in every level, whether it's economical or cultural, uh, philosophically. So I think that um, for that incredible generation out there, uh, 
it's it's just really completely reinventing the system. It's the only way forward. And 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 that's that's great advice because I think there's a lot of business opportunity in in reinventing many of the systems that we have now that are broken. Um, so Anne, I want to thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Your your images. Your work just shows tremendous respect for the planet, and um, as you said, you know, looking at the individuality of cultures, but all of us being in this together and and doing that through art, I think is so unique and so powerful. So thank you for your work, and and I hope many of our listeners will support you by going to your exhibits and um, you know looking at your work online as well as in person. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Amy. You can learn more about Anne's work and the Time Shrine Foundation by visiting oneplanetonefuture.org. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, March 16th, when we'll be speaking with Luke Truman of the Allagash Brewing Company. BARD MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at mba.bard.edu.